perished. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived 777 years and then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So um, Noah is 10th in the line from Adam. 10 is this, in Hebrew thought, is this number of, it's a divine, divine perfection, a perfect number. So Noah's 10th in the line. Remember we talked last week about sometimes they leave some people out because they're trying to make a theological point. Noah's really important. And so we'll see that as we move forward, that he plays a very significant role uh, in God's plan for salvation for the world. His dad, when he's born, says, hey, you're going to comfort us. And just a side note for parents, sometimes as parents, God will kind of give you a headline for your kid. You'll see something in them, or you just kind of have this thought or this feeling, and like this is, this is in them, or this is what they're going to be. And I would encourage you as parents to grab onto the headline, but don't write the article. That you're going you're gonna to mess up when you try to do that. Even Mary did that with Jesus. You're gonna, he's going to be the Messiah. He's going to save his people from sins, from their sins. Uh, he's going to cause the rising, the falling of many in Israel. And a sword's going to pierce your own heart. And then we read just a few chapters later, she tries to stop him. She thinks Jesus is going is nuts, and she tries to prevent him from li- living out his calling. She had the headline, but she wasn't exactly sure what it was going to look like. She had kind of created that in her own mind, like we do as moms and dads, and she was wrong. And she actually, at one point, was kind of opposing what Jesus was trying to do. I was thinking of Lamech. So he's really old. 595 years is how long he lives after he has Noah. So 600 years after he has Noah is when the flood comes. So your dad, your kid comes to you, you've sent him to college and all that stuff. What are you going to do with your life, son? I'm going to build an ark. Why? Well, God said, you know, to build this ark because the whole world's going to be flooded and every, every living thing that's going to be saved is going to fit in this boat. Do you have a blueprint? i got some rough dimensions. Anybody help? No, I'm just I'm going to do this. So your dad, you've just spent 120 grand on college, and that's what he says to you. And as Lamech, you're watching him build this thing. You never see the flood. You die five years before the flood is, occurs. So you never see if your son was actually nuts or if he heard the Lord. Like, you don't know with that. He had this picture. Noah, he's going to comfort people. He had no idea exactly what that would look like. I don't know if he was a supportive dad or not. It's irrelevant. I think for us, the side note, grab onto the headline. Don't write the article. Allow God to be creative, unique with how he fulfills those things that you know to be true in your kids' lives. Chapter 6, when, God began, when men began to increase in number. So the population is going up on the earth. And daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. And they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, these were the heroes of old, men of renown. Most obscure four verses in Genesis, maybe in the Bible. I don't want to get in the weeds, but for some, I, some of you want to hear this, so real quick, you can read some more about it on the Internet because everything on there is true. Two options. Two main options. Sons of God. Everything about what this passage means hinges on what you think sons of God is referring to. Two main options. One, humans from the line of Seth. When we said Seth is righteous. And so you have these sons of God. Sometimes in the Bible, 
God's people are often called children of God. So metaphorically, we can say, oh, yeah, sons of God, they're his kids, they're his children, righteous line of Seth. They're intermarrying with daughters of Cain, the wicked line, that idea they took any, uh, any women that they chose. So there's intermarriage between righteous and wicked. The resulting offspring are wicked, and so wickedness is increasing as a population is going up. More and more intermarriage between righteous and wicked, more and more children being born, and more and more wickedness increasing. So that's one picture of what this means. And in that idea, this, this cryptic reference to the Nephilim, who are they? They're the offspring of these unions, of these marriages. And they, some would say they were giants. There's one other time in Numbers 13.33 that phrase ne- or that word Nephilim is used and it's to refer to some giants. And so maybe somehow these people were seen as like, it's a wicked population and so everybody saw them as these great guys. But from God's perspective, they were fallen. That's what Nephilim means, fallen ones. So that's one way of looking at this. The other way of looking at it is to say sons of God means angels. And that we have angels marrying human women. How about that? Awesome. So the result of their marriage is this kind of half-breed race, these Nephilim, who would be probably seen as these pretty heroic people. There would be something special about them. And again, Nephilim means fallen one. So you've got these kind of fallen angel-human hybrid things running around and they're increasing evil on the earth. So, you can decide which one. For me, just in case you care, I go for the angel one. I've already said snakes can talk. I've already said people are living 900 years, and some guy gets zapped straight to heaven. So, angels and people, that's not going to be the deal breaker for me. Um, Why do I believe that? The phrase sons of God appears three times outside of this passage in the Bible, all three times in Job, and every time it means divine beings every time there's no question that's what it refers to so for me i'm going to say well if that's what it means the other three times then that's what it means this fourth time um one of the criticisms of this view other than you have angels and women getting married which is not a small thing is this idea that well how come god is punishing the people on the earth if it's angels that are instigating some of this these fallen angels are instigating it how come he's not punishing them in second peter 2 4 and in jude 6 you see these verses that, that refer back to this time of Noah, we think. They're allusions to this time of Noah. And they're saying the angels are being punished as well. So the New Testament writers seem to say that's what's going on here in the Old Testament. The biggest knock on the idea of seeing sons of God as angels is Jesus says, when, he talk, when he's talking about marriage, says, uh, in the kingdom of heaven you will, neither marry nor be give, or you will neither marry nor be given in marriage like the angels in heaven. What I would say is, well, these angels weren't in heaven. They had fallen, and they were on the face of the earth, and who knows what's going on. doesn't matter. It's not going to affect your salvation one way or the other. You can delete the last four minutes of your memory if you would like to. Five, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. Listen to this phrase. Every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Every inclination, only evil all the time. Those are all encompassing words. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I'll wipe mankind whom I've created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I'm grieved that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So here's the picture. Again, we've got this 
thing is going downhill and there's no parking brake. Wickedness is increasing at an alarming rate. Every inclination is only evil all the time. There's not a lot of room for gray there. It's corrupt and it's getting more corrupt with each successive generation. God is grieved. That's an emotional word. I don't know if you ever picture God as emotional. He's grieved. He's filled with pain is what it says. And that idea behind grieved is he feels this way and it causes him to take a new course of action. And that's what we see. He goes from sustaining the earth to cleansing it. And he puts a time limit on. He says in 120 years, this is when this is going to happen. That whole idea of I'm only going to contend with man for 120 more years. There's 120 more years before the flood is going to come. Some side note, some people see that as the life expectancy for people. But in the Bible, the only person I know who lived to be 120 was Moses. It does that, I don't think that fits. And in Psalm 90, it says, talks about our lifespan being 70 or 80 years, which, which is more kind of what we think. And the Bible says that during the days of Noah, God waited patiently while Noah built the ark. So to me, there's this picture where God has decided, this is what I'm going to do, and he still waits. And I don't think, and I, I think the reason he's waiting is to give people a chance to repent. Second Peter 2 says Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Building a big old boat, is probably going to make people say, hey, why are you building a big old boat? And so Noah had an opportunity to say, here's what I know, and what we know is not one person responded. Zero, zero converts. He was an awesome preacher. Not one person said yes to his message, but he had all of this time where he was preaching righteousness. I think God, sometimes we read this and we say, God is just mean. He killed Bambi and kittens and people and ba- like. Why? What, how can you serve a God who would do that? And I, what I would say is it, it was only evil. Every inclination was only evil all the time. Things were going downhill and there was no way of pulling up. And so rather than just blowing the whole thing up, he said, I'm going to cleanse this. I'm going to pull out representatives of every creature and we're going to start over. That to me is merciful. As People, we've said before, looking back at Genesis 1 and 2, people were the pinnacle of creation, the last thing created on day 6, given dominion, rulership, authority in the earth. And the good consequences of that are when we make good decisions, it blesses those who are connected with us. And the, and the flip side of that is when we make bad decisions, those decisions ripple. And you see, even with creation, the, the wicked decisions that people were making were polluting the environment. In a lot of ways. And God says, i got to clean the whole thing. You don't have to be a member of the Sierra Club to get that. The choices that we make impact more than just us. They impact our environment. They impact creation. And so, and so creation is caught up in the judgment on humanity because humanity has been put in charge of creation. And so, again, rather than just wiping everything out, God says, I'm going I'm to pull these folks aside. We'll look at that next week when we talk about the ark and the flood and animals and all that. I'm going to pull these folks aside and I'm going to save them. And the rest of this I'm washing so we can start over. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of the time. He walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jephath. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. So you have that idea again. God saw, saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. Again, that all-inclusive word. 
So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all the people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth, so make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it, finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top, put a door in the side of the ark, and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring flood waters on the earth to destroy all life under, under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark. You and your sons and your, and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You're to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. This is what I want us to hear. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Again, next week we'll get into all the details of the ark and what does that look like and how could that have been possible and all of those types of things. This morning I just want you to think about Noah, this idea. Noah found favor with God. So uh, there's love, there's grace, there's favor. They're connected, but they're not the same. The word favor here is, is um, close to grace, but they're not synonymous. So I'm going to try to make some distinctions. I want you to try to stay with me. Don't hear me saying that you've got to earn God's acceptance. So we've got love. God loves the world, John 3:16. Seven billion people, and he loves every one of them. But we know not all of them respond to the love of God. According to the stats, there's two billion Christians. So of the seven billion, five billion, for whatever reason, have said, no, I'm not interested in receiving this love of God, for whatever reason. Maybe they haven't heard, or for whatever reason, they've said no. So of this 7 billion, there's 2 billion who've received the grace of God. Think When I say grace, think in your mind God's power. Think of divine enablement to do the things that God wants to do, or divine enablement for God to accomplish his purposes. So we're saved by grace. We're saved by God's power through faith, by trusting in him. So we have 7 billion people who he loves, 2 billion who've responded to that love by repenting of their sins and trusting Jesus. Those are the conditions for salvation. I've got to repent of my sins, so I'm walking this way, so I'm going to turn and start walking this way. That's repentance and trusting in Jesus. That's what it means to be saved. So now I've opened myself up to receive the grace of God, the power of God in my life, the power to do all of the things that he's asked me to do. That's what I've, that two billion people, theoretically, have said yes to that. But of those two billion, there's even a smaller subset. People who've, who are experiencing the favor of God. That word favor, you can think of uh, God's pleased with them. That's not good. Think about it this way. Um, when, you, when you put your faith or your trust in God, that's, that's receiving his grace. You access him through trust. When, he, when you experience his favor, it's him saying, I trust you in return. So faith says, God, I trust you. Favor is God saying, hey, and I trust you back. And that's a smaller subset of people. We don't earn favor. Remember, it's, it's connected to grace. When I say favor, don't think about money, cars, health. It's sitting prosperity stuff. When I say favor, I want you to think about it means God trusts me. And when he trusts me, he shares with me the things that are on his heart. He shares with me what he's doing. We see that with Noah. Noah found favor with God, and so what did he do? He said, here, Noah, here's what's about to happen, and here's your part in that. Abraham, another person who's said to find favor with God. And what does God do? Hey, Abraham, here's the deal. Sodom and Gomorrah, no good. So here's what's going to happen with those cities, and here's how you can get involved. 
Joseph, when he's arrested, finds favor with the warden. What does the warden say? Hey, Joseph, I trust you. You can run the whole jail. Mary finds favor with God. What's the deal? Hey, Mary, here's the thing. I'm, I'm sending the Messiah, and you're going to get to be his mom. You see that picture. When, when, when I'm saying favor with God, what I want in your mind is not God likes me more than he likes other people or God's going to give me a bunch of stuff. What I want you thinking is God trusts me enough to share with me the things that he's doing and to pull me into that. That's what it means. That's what you see here with Noah. He found favor in the eyes of God, and that's a smaller subset. So of the seven billion who he loves, two billion respond to that love, and so they receive his grace. And of that two billion who've received his grace, there's a smaller subset, I don't know how many, who experience God's favor. And there are things that we can do to position ourselves to receive his favor. We don't earn it, just like I didn't earn my salvation, but I still had to repent and trust. It doesn't mean I earned it. It just means those are the conditions for receiving it. You give me a check, I still got to go to the bank and cash it. It doesn't mean that I earn the money. I just have to cash the check. So that's this idea behind this grace being, or salvation being a free gift. And the same thing is true with favor. It's connected to grace. It's something he gives us. I don't earn it, but I can position myself to experience the favor of God. Noah did. And so what were the things about Noah that positioned him to be one in whom God, who, who found favor in God's sight? He was blameless. He was righteous. He walked with God. Righteous, he lived up to this standard. That's what it means to be righteous. There's a standard that Noah lived up to as New Testament believers. What does that look like for us? Jesus says the two, the two greatest commandments are to love God and love people. That's the standard. And so the question becomes, am I living up to that? Am I living up to loving God and loving people? To me, that's, that's a pretty big umbrella, and it's pretty ambiguous, and there's a whole lot of wiggle room. So I can allow myself to believe that I'm living up to that standard when I may not be. So a couple of questions you can ask to dig a little deeper. What's your definition of success? I don't know anybody who says when they wake up in the morning, I can't wait to be a failure today. All of us move in the direction of success. The issue is that most of us don't explicitly say what success is for us. We just keep it internal. My encouragement to you is to say it. Say, this is what it looks like for me to be successful. How are you defining it? That becomes your standard. Then you're righteous compared to that standard. You're living up to that standard, whatever it happens to be. In our community, many people define success materially. I want to have this much in my bank account and this in my driveway and I want to live in this neighborhood, whatever those things are. And so if that's your definition of success, you need to own that because that's the direction that you're living towards. You're making choices based on achieving those goals because you've said that's what it means for me to be successful. Nobody sets out to be a failure. Some of you, if you say my definition of success has something to do with my family, family something, healthy family. And then in your mind, you've got kind of what that looks like, probably down to the person. And so for you, that's what you're living toward. You're making decisions based on achieving that level of health with your family. You can see how that can begin to pull apart. If someone's definition with success is materialistic and someone's definition about success is family health and they happen to be married and they don't talk about it, guess what happens? They come to see me because things are not going well. I've got to work. Success for me. And it may be with the best of motives. I want to make sure we've got 401k. I want to make sure we've got a college fund. I want, to make, I want to make sure that you're taken care of and y'all have everything you need. So I'm going to work 70 or 75 a week. 
and she's saying, I just, I'm tired of sitting in an empty place at the dinner table. I want you here because success for me is us together. Neither one of you is necessarily wrong. You're just completely missing each other because you haven't said, this is what it looks like for me to be successful. This is the standard by which I'm living. That conversation needs to happen or you're going to, at best, you're going to cross paths. At worst, you're going to pull yourselves apart. And you don't want to do that. Success in marriage is definitely not pulling yourselves apart or crossing paths. So my question to you, how are you defining success? What does that look like for you? Beneath that, what do you value? I don't want you to tell me what you value. I want you to ask people who know you well what you value. So people in your small group, your closest friends, not based on what I say, but based on what, how you see me live, what would you say that I value? What would you say I shape my life around? And then that question can be a driver when it comes to righteousness. And what I, what I want ideally is I want those values to help me love God and love people more concretely. So you may say, somebody, you know what, you, you really value hospitality. That's a great way of loving God and loving people, opening your home and your life to them. Somebody may say, looking at you, you value service. That's a great way of loving God and loving people, by serving them. You may value authenticity in relationships. Great way of loving God and loving people, by being real and inviting them to be real and talking about those kinds of things. So that's where you want to get to. This whole question of righteousness can be, ambiguous. Even loving God and loving people can be such a broad category, it's hard to know. So I want to ask underneath that, how are you defining success? Are you defining it in the way God would, in the way God does? Let's ask that. And then what are your values? What are the things that you're shaping your life around? And are those the things that, that are in God's heart as well? Things that he would say, absolutely shape your life around that. That is excellent and incredible. And if the answer to those are no, those things are not necessarily kingdom values, or my definition of success doesn't necessarily line up with God's, and I would say, well, that's the spot where there needs to be some repentance in you and some growth and some change, and you can ask him to help you with that. So that's what it looks like to be righteous, to be blameless. Don't think sinless. No sin. We all have. So blameless doesn't mean sinless. Blameless means whole or sound. Think integrity. So maybe over on this end you've got a hypocrite. Hypocrites in the Bible are people who wear masks. So I change who I am based on the situation that I'm in or the people that I'm around. Being blameless is at the other end of the spectrum, the other end of the continuum from that idea of hypocrisy. I'm integrated. I know who I am in Christ and I am who I am in whatever situation I'm in. I'm not a chameleon. That's the question. Are you a chameleon? You tend to change your colors based on the situation and the, and the relationships that you're in. If the answer is yes, then I would say you're probably not blameless. You're not whole in that sense. That word blameless was used of the animals that were sacrificed in the Old Testament. That's what they had to be like. They had to be blameless in terms of the way they looked. And so that's what God's looking for from us. Very, very difficult to be blameless if you're insecure in who you are in Christ. If you're insecure in who you are, then the the default is always going to be, if I don't know who I am in Christ, I'm going to allow you to define me in whatever situation I'm in. So you've got to start there. Values is a great place to start. 
we can figure that thing out, then it's a lot easier to move towards being blameless because I know these are the things that are vital to me. These are the things that I'm willing to shape my life around, and so I'm going to shape my life around them, around them regardless of where I am and who I'm with. So let me figure out what those values are and then look to talk about what does it look like for me to live those things out with integrity and undergirding all of that, walk with God. Only Noah and Enoch and all of the Bible are said to walk with God. Remember last week we said that, that, that idea of get along. Do you get along with God? Think about it not in super spiritual, high and holy ways, but in very comfortable ways, the way you would say you get along with another person. Do you get along with him that way? That undergirds everything else. If you don't have that getting along with God underneath, then everything else becomes legalistic and pharisaical. And that's not the trap you want to fall into. It becomes letter of the law. You become totally externally focused when it comes to being righteous and blameless because you're not getting along with him. There's nothing happening internally within you. Everything is external with what you're trying to do. So the foundation for being righteous and blameless is first walking with him, and that's available to everyone. The key is authenticity, being genuine, genuine with God, just like you are with another person. You're not going to get along with anyone who you have to be fake with. You're just not, you, can't, you don't connect at a deep enough level, and the same thing is true with the Lord. We've got to get to a point where we can be honest with him, not in an arrogant way, not as spoiled brats, but to say, this is how I'm experiencing this. I'm singing a song about restoration, and my car is upside down in my living room, if you're in the Philippines. Like, I, I'm not happy about that. You could have stopped this. Why didn't you? How, you're all-powerful. i got to know. How come you didn't heal here? How come you didn't protect here? Those are the things that we've got to be willing to share with him, or we're not going to be able to get along with him. Can you get along with somebody you're hiding things from? Not for long. You're not going to have this deep communion with God if you've got these parts of you that you're unwilling to share with him for whatever reason. So that's step one to walking with him is being willing to own all of your heart towards him. Again, not in a bratish way, but to say, this is how I'm experiencing you right now. This is what I'm getting through my circumstances. I read these things. I sing these things. I hear these things, and here's where it doesn't line up with my life, and I'm having a hard time with that. And you've got to be willing to bring that to him if you ever want to get along with him. Again, not as a spoiled child, but as someone who's honestly and earnestly saying, I want to figure this thing out. I want to get along with you at a deeper level. So that idea, find favor with God like Noah. I want to be righteous. What are my values? How am I defining success? I want to be blameless. I want to be who God's made me to be. I want to live out of the security of who I am as his son, regardless of circumstance and relationship. And I want to walk with him. I want to get along with him at this deep, deep level. And what's the result of finding favor with God for Noah? Does he get rich? No. What does he get? He gets to build an ark. That's what. Here we go. God, Noah finds favor with God, this glimmer of hope in this black world of corruption and wickedness. And what does he say to him? Hey, I got a great idea. You go build an ark. And the thing is huge. Walk out the door and look up at Marietta Pizza. That's about how long the thing is. It's as wide as from this wall to the front door, and it's two of these ceilings high. How many power tools did Noah have? None. How many trees did he cut down? environmentalists, that's a lot of trees. They're all about to be flooded anyway, so 
Anyway, then what does he do? He's got to, what, plane the wood, dip planks out of these trees that he's cut down? There's no indication that he subcontracted any of the workout. Who helped him? No offense, women. Who helped him? He had three sons. It says he started having kids when he was 500. I have no idea what he was doing the first 500 years of his life. Starts having kids at 500. He has three of them. He gets on the boat at 600. So I don't know, like, age-wise, if you're living to be 950, is 500 really, like, is that the new 40? I don't, is that halfway? If that's the case, then these guys were teenagers. How many of your teenagers would help you build an ark? Dad, you're such a loser. Every time my friends come over, this is so lame. Can you imagine your kid? You're the only one, the entire population of the earth. I don't know how many people there are. The entire population, your dad's the only guy. The only righteous one. And he's building this ark because he says God's going to make it rain so much. This is the only safe place to be. That's what Noah gets for finding favor with God. Does that make you want to find favor with him? Yeah, I'll build an ark by hand, by myself, for 60 or 70 years, however long it takes. Had to be that. Can you imagine doing that? That's what it looks like to find favor with him. He says, Noah, this is what I'm going to do. And in this case, it's a negative. I'm going to cleanse the earth. And here's your part. You're going to save as many as you can. Unfortunately, it's just going to be you and your wife and your sons and their wives because everybody else, it's every inclination is evil all the time. It's only evil all the time. So you're it. You've had 120 years of preaching righteousness to them and not one of them repented. Not one of them went for it. Not one of them said, you know what? There's something to what you're saying. So it's just going to be y'all. But this is your part. We talk about good works. That's what they are. Some of you today, you have these ark things. I talked to a guy this week, and he called me and said, hey, he's a service provider. He provides a particular service. And he says, I feel like God wants me to start giving it away for free. What do you think about that? I said, how are you going to feed your family? And he said, donations. We'll figure it out. I feel like God said, give this away for free. That's an ark. That's crazy. He's got three kids, and he's talking about giving away something he's very good at. He's just saying, I'm going to do this for nothing because I feel like God wants me to give it away to people. It makes me better at what I do to not charge. That's an ark-type moment, and some of you have that. We've talked here about planting a church. There may be someone in here who that's your thing. God's saying plant a church, and that's not in the direction that you're going right now, and for you to do that, that you might as well build a boat from here to Marietta Pizza. It's that nuts based on your family. It may be something else for you. My encouragement to you is to see that as an opportunity. God trusts you. That's why he shared that with you. If he didn't, he wouldn't have. And your response, I hope, is like Noah's. Do everything he commanded. If you don't have one of those, you will. And the thing, that, that's what he's, God's looking for friends, not because he's needy but because there's a lot of stuff that he wants to do and he doesn't want to do it on his own. He's looking for people to help him accomplish the things that are in his heart. He's looking for people to help him literally save the world. It's what he was doing with Noah. I'm going to, I'm going to cleanse this whole thing and I need somebody who's going to help me save whoever will be saved. 1 Timothy 2.4 God doesn't delight in anyone perishing. He wants everybody to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's the mission that he's on, to see our communities and our world transformed by his glory and by his power. And he's saying, who wants to help? If you find favor with him, what he's going to do, he, maybe you'll get stuff 
Most likely, no. What he's going to say is, I'm glad you're willing to help me with this. Let me tell you what's going on and how you get to participate. And he's going to tell you to go build an ark. And you're going to go do it. And after you build it, he's going to say, build another one. It's good works, plural, for us. Not this one thing. You'll be working with him in conjunction with him until you're done. And you're done when you're dead. Noah started when he was 500. None of us are getting there. It's this great invitation. We want to find favor with him, not to make us special or to get stuff for ourselves. We want to find favor with him because we want him to trust us to say, this is what I'm doing, and here's how you can participate in what I'm doing. I'm on a mission to save as many people as will say yes to me. There's 7 billion and 5 billion of them, for whatever reason, are resisting. Some of them I've never heard. Some of them, the stuff they've heard is just not true. Some of them are angry at me. Some of them just, they can't get their mind around that I'm real. For whatever reason, 5 billion are resisting. And I need people to help me reach them. Our world is not Genesis 6. It's not every inclination, only evil all the time. But there is wickedness in our communities. And what God's saying is, I want it to stop. I want it to stop. And I need people who will help me stop it. I need people who will help me stop poverty. I need people who will help me stop divorce. I need people who will help me stop addiction. I need people who are going to get involved in these things. That's what I'm doing. Will you, will you build an ark? You may look D-U-M-B for a long, long time. But there's, it's not a flood next time. It's a fire and it's coming. And it burns up everything that's not made of silver or gold. Everything that can be burned will burn. We'll talk about that a little more next week. Jesus says in the days of Noah, they were, just, they were living life. They were marrying and giving in marriage. They were eating and drinking. They didn't know a flood was coming. How did they not know? Noah, he's building a boat. How did they not know? We live in the same time. We're just living our life. We don't recognize there's a fire coming that's going to burn up everything. And what God is saying is I want to rescue as many people as possible. So who's going to help build arts? He's looking for people he can trust. He'll do that. Let's pray. We're late. It's 12.30. If y'all give us five minutes, that'd be great. If you got to go, you can slip out as soon as I say amen. Otherwise, Bo's going to, I'd encourage y'all to stay a little bit for ministry. If you get up and go, it'll kind of, it'll be a little bit distracting. But if you got to, you, you have to. I went long. God, I thank you that you, you're looking. You say you're looking. Your eyes range throughout the earth. You're looking for someone whose heart is fully yours so that you can strongly support them. And God, I pray for the men and the women in this room that you would find people in this room that you trust. You would find 13-year-old girls and you would find 80-year-old men. And you'd find everything in between. 
you'd find intellectuals and you would find feelers and you would find artists and you would find engineers and you would find people who were skeptical and you would find people who've never doubted. You would find people who've lived through tragedy. And you'd find people who say, my life's been blessed. God, we want to be people who you can trust. We want to be people who find favor in your eyes. Not because we want to be special, but because we want to help. God, speak to us in the places where honestly we're we're not earning your trust. Show us what it looks like, what we need to do. Righteous and blameless and to walk with you. And then God, show us what the ark is that you want us to build. Give us the courage to say yes. Even if we're the only one, God, give us the courage to say yes. God, I pray we pull as many as we can along with us. None of it for our sake. None of it for our glory. All of it for the sake of those who don't know. And for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to have ministry teams up here in the corners. We'll pray with you about anything that you've got going on. If anything I shared kind of stirred your heart and love pray with you about that. So you guys can stand and Bo will dismiss us when this song is over.